The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Government calls Harold Norman. If you would, please, if you'd come forward. And I believe you were sworn earlier as a witness, were you not? Yes, sir. Just have a seat right up there, please. Tell us your name. Harold Norman. Where do you live, Mr. Norman? Dallas, Texas. Thank you. Did you watch the motorcade with any co-workers? Yes, sir. And what are their names? James Jorman, which is known as Junior, and Monterey William. As I recall, the rhythm of the sounds of shots were boom, click, click, boom, click, click, boom, click, click. You thought there was an armed man upstairs, right? You didn't run and get the hell out of there? No, sir. You never did call down for the police? No, sir. You stayed up there for 15 minutes just watching the crowd after that. Isn't that true? I can't say exactly what time it was, sir. You stayed up there for quite some time watching the crowd afterwards. Isn't that true, sir? I stayed up for a while. Yes. Mr. Oswald, isn't that I true? I don't know, sir. He wasn't there either, was he? I never did see him anymore, sir. Yes. for making this even remotely possible to happen. Um, I've been wanting to talk to this guy for a while. He, he thinks outside the box. He's in, inspired me in my research. And he's never uh, actually presented any of his evidence before, <clears throat> live or in person. So this is a first. It's exclusive here on the Lone Gummin Podcast, just for you. And my guest is lives up in the uh, 
up in the mountains of New Hampshire. So, um, we didn't have the best, you know, connection, so to say. Uh, so the audio may not be as good as it normally is. And I apologize for that, but it's the best we can do, um, with, with what we have. And, uh, also my guest had suffered a stroke a couple years ago and sometimes, uh, his words aren't as clear as he'd like them to be. So if anybody has any questions out there, um, after, after any of these shows, just, just shoot me an email at the Lungaman podcast, uh, at gmail.com and we'll clarify things for you. Um, but overall I think it's, it sounds good. It went good. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there for anybody who says, Oh yeah, the show sounds like crap. You know, we couldn't understand your guest. Well, I apologize in advance, but, uh, the information that, that, that Richard is bringing forward to you, it, it needs to be heard. Uh, so please enjoy, listen, and learn like I did. Uh, before we get into it, we're going to have a little message from my, my friends over at the ROKC. This is a very dangerous and uncertain world. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy. Certainly not in this decade. And perhaps not in this century. The ROKC, Reopen the Kennedy Case, proudly presents the first ever Australian JFK conference in Melbourne, Australia, this November. Join us on a quest for justice and truth with inspirational speakers and some of the world's leading authorities on the Kennedy assassination. Featured guest speakers include Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination speaker and acclaimed author James DiEugenio, Gail Nix Jackson, author and granddaughter of Orville Nix, and Australia's very own Peter Morris. For more info, buy your tickets at stickytickets.com slash reopen Kennedy case conference because justice is never too late. Thank you for that, folks. And without further ado, I bring to you the first in a series. This is going to be a multi-week, multi-part interview because there's a lot of information to cover. So this is part one. We lay the groundwork for you. Okay. Enjoy the show, people. What's up, everybody? And welcome to the Lone Gumman Podcast. This is your host, Rob Clark. This is episode 86. And I have a very special guest joining me today. Uh, his name is Richard Gilbride. He's the author of Matrix for Assassination, which you can get on Amazon. And uh, he's also done a, a lot of other work, uh, written some articles, uh, was a part of the ROKC forum for a while. Richard, how you doing, sir? I'm doing real well. Um, my first real uh, big time, um, you know, presentation. So I hope I go okay. I think I will. I'm pretty relaxed, and uh, um, I did. I have some. I want to thank you first of all for the invitation to speak, and uh, it's a real privilege to be able to share my research. And I just wanted to open up with a um, quote from St. Paul: um, "Our struggle is not against flesh and blood." but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And uh, I have some introductory remarks I just want to go through. Uh, I would say we need to take this fight right to the government media complex. Right. Uh, 52 years now, our so-called free press has kept us in the dark about JFK's assassination. And the mainstream media has failed its once noble mandate to be a guardian of the people's freedom. 
and people need nourishment of truth that's life-sustaining, just like water and sunlight to a plant. Without that life-sustaining force, we as a nation will eventually wither and die. We cannot keep living a lie and not expect to uh, self-destruct. It'd be just like a preacher telling kids not to do drugs and then go home and shooting himself up with heroin. Right. Um, my generation, the baby boomers, can handle the truth. We've known throughout the course of our lives that JFK's murder was a dirty crime. And his real killers got away with it. And his real killers seized the power of the U.S. government. Now, it seems to me only a metaphysical revolution will save this nation. Otherwise, we'll eventually self-destruct from the way of our own lives. And it seems to me the Kennedy scholars are an integral part of this metaphysical American revolution. So we need to extend, first of all, to extend forgiveness to the real killers of JFK. We need to bring the truth about JFK's murder right to the government media complex, right to its doorstep and right into its heart, and then begin the process of living with the truth. That's it. (laughs) Well said, well said. And for everybody out there that's, that's not familiar <clears throat> with you, um, if if you would just 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 give everybody you know a little little bit of uh, background on yourself and and what got you interested and 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 some stuff like that. Well, I grew up in Boston and uh, I was in fourth grade when this happened and uh, I've been following it um, most of my life and read all the popular books. Like it, and it's funny when I, when the movie came out, Oliver Stone. That's when I um. I lost interest in your case. I just said, well, Tubman said he did a great job, and, uh, you know, well, they, they, they'll never, truth will never come out. That's about as good as we're going to get. Right. And uh, so about 10 years later, I was, um, while the way, the, the, the time in the bookstore, I was straight forward and went to a bookstore. I walked to, to the history section, and seeing what come out about the JFK assassination, I was floored. So the people that get so inspired by the movie to, um, you know, really dig down and come up with some amazing stuff. And uh, so that's why I picked it up again. And uh, I just went um, whole hog with it since then. It's been about 12 years or so. I've been basically doing it full time. And, um, you know, it's been an amazing ride, actually. I've just, uh, um, stuff, stuff I've learned and come up with, um, I never would have expected. And it's just, it, it, um, it showed me one person could really make a huge difference. There's one, you, you get a little bit of running room, it's like a running back. You get a, a lot of open field ahead of you. You'd be surprised because um, you think that everything's been covered, but there's so much still left to find out about this this crime and left to learn because it, it just um, takes in all kinds of facets of um, your expertise and all kinds of facets of of what uh, the world is like, you know, what the, the uh, overt and the covert um, history of our world is going on. So you you just never regret it. You cannot learn more about the world that we live in by than by studying the uh, assassination. And so I was um, I joined uh, I finished the book um, in 2009, and uh, I started doing forms, and I joined uh, the FBI Lancer. For a couple of years, and then I went over to um, the Open Candy case. Um, I was an administrator there for a couple of years as well. Right. And, um, so, uh, well, I did. I did have some uh, recommendations. I started reading the forms again, 
not to go. I resigned from the, the ROKC for uh, about a year and a half ago, last May. And uh, so I just got together, I had to take a break from the case, and I got back into it. And um, I just had some uh, observations that they can, uh, you know, suggestions they can uh, take up on or just, you know, leave, whatever. But just some personal observations for them to uh, model over. Um, the first thing it seems to me that they're over-relying on uh, the prayer man, um, researcher Sean Murphy. Um, I've been uh, in agreement with that research uh, since 2010 when he first showed it to me at Lancer. And, uh, you know, I remember I kind of made some kind of brass comment back then, uh, anybody who doesn't see Oswald in that doorway needs a tailored name, something like that, you know. But um, there, there's still... Uh, Philosophical and technical problems with that image that um, I don't think are going to be uh, resolved in the near future. Um, philosophically, for one thing, uh, we've done real good with um, getting pictures of all the employees, but um, one guy we still don't have is um, True Don Phelps. He was a uh, worker there who either got fired or quit on um, November 16th, a uh, week before. Right. So, I mean, somebody could have just recognized him and said, hey, sure, come on up and, uh, you know, watch the parade with us. It could be him. It could be, uh, there's also a doppelganger in one of the uh, trance photos. Yeah. Now, the timing on these is really good. It's uh, somewhere around 2.19 p.m. Right. When you see this, um, in the background of one of those, in the middle of the trance photos, See a real small image of the dog walking guy talking to Inspector Herbert Sawyer. And um, the timing has been uh, set pretty good because guys have measured shadows on the depository. And um, the uh, photo historian uh, Richard Trask interviewed the photographer who had come from Fort Worth and said he got in the plaza about 2 p.m. So it's somewhere around 2.19. And what, so Oswald was arrested at 1.52. So you could almost say that this doppelganger, this guy who was praying, man. Now, it's not a very strong argument, I don't know, you know, and all of that, but you, you should be able to not to have um, any semblance of a doubt whatsoever that praying man is Oswald, which, you know, I do agree with. But the um, biggest problem is the technical uh, shortcomings of the image that we have. It's from the Tarnell film. Um, I'm pretty sure it's, it's an early copy. You know, I don't know. I'm not a photography expert. I don't know which copy it came from. But um, it's a very blurry image. You can't convince. Uh, I tried to go to one of my close friends, and I got laughed at. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, I say, look, this is Oswald. It's where he was during the shooting. And um, I got laughed at because it's really a hazy, blurry kind of image and um uh yeah i think i, I think the, uh, the, the the six floor museum has a um, first generation copy as a copy that was made um on the weekend of the assassination it's, uh there's copyright problems with it being owned by the uh darnell family and they want to the people access or whatever right and um so i my opinion is that uh, you need about a 20% um, improvement in the current image. 
And I don't think you're going to get that from the copy that the museum has. I'm really skeptical about that, that you're going to get anything much more than a 5% improvement in the image. And you might not even get that much, because I'm sure it was very good in those days. And um, so there's, I think there's going to be a disappointment uh, on the part of the uh, people who make this frontal attack and uh, say the praying man is odd or whatnot. Cause, um, you know, it gives me the, uh, we're such a soundbite nation that you need something that's going to um, instantly uh, make it clear to the average American that um, this was, was Lee Harvey Oswald, he's in the doorway during the shooting. Yeah. You know, otherwise, if you have to go through a long-winded argument, people just don't have the uh, patience anymore, uh, you know, to listen to it. So, that's what I say. If, if I was... If I was involved with that, I would try to get Robert Groden um, to get the copy made because he's in dealing files all the time. He's um, you know, he's a towering figure in the uh, as far as his body work, as far as the photography aspect of the assassination. He's about well, one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet, and uh, even though he's 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 been arrested eight some odd times in the Victoria yeah. Museum and something to do with that. Um, there's probably some bad blood between him and the museum. Um, he's the guy that would get on board with um, trying to get like a scan made of the frames from the Darnell film, and maybe there'd be a better quality image, but um, don't bet the house on it. That's all I can uh, say. It's more toward, um, I think we have to make a uh, kind of a flank attack on the uh, government media complex. I would put this, this frame in, it's kind of like a frontal attack. Well, you say Oswald was in the sniper's nest? Well, no, he, there he is right there. I think the flank attack where we have a, um, a, a deeper understanding of this case is what we need. Because I think we want, we're able to take this to a grand jury if we really band together and right. um, you know, get a deeper understanding of what was going on in the depository. So, all right, that's the first thing. The second thing I would want to recommend to um, the ROKC forum and uh, Greg is um, try to get that Amos Humans tape uh, um, on the air or published or whatever um, online. Um, I really want to, uh, I'd like to see interest in this guy that's reignited because he's such a crucial um, eyewitness. He's one of only two eyeball witnesses to the sniper up in the uh, nest there. Right. And, uh, you know, I think he, he, he's been a YouTube museum about four years ago or so, and you know, he looks a real approachable kind of guy. And his story is basically a very, because, I mean, as people well know, um, he had told uh, a news director, James Underwood, in the five minutes after the assassination, that he was a call guy that he saw up, up there in the nest. and. Um, Meanwhile, he sits in the sheriff's office until uh, about 8 p.m. And um, they come out with uh, an affidavit that says this was a white man, not have on a hat. I mean, this is uh, bonkers, and you know, it doesn't—it it smells right from the get-go. This, there's, not, there's something wrong here, you know. And we've never heard from Amos. I'm sure he's got an incredible story to tell, and somebody could. Um, get an interview with him or even invite him to a conference. And it might be just a matter of he's never been uh, approached for 
an invite to a conference. I mean, just like that, you'd be amazed that these things, you know, slip your mind, but they do. Cause you, you know, people figure, well, someone must have gone after them, whatever. This would be a great opportunity for someone who's new in the uh, research community to um, really make a significant difference. Because I mean, it would be a well of a story. Oh, yeah, most yeah. definitely. So you were saying that they had held Amos Ewan's at, at the station for almost seven hours? He was held there from uh, 1 p.m. until uh, 8 p.m. is when he, he got to go home. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, you know, something is... Um, until his story changed. Yeah, you know, it's just, I mean, you'd see him waiting for you know, a couple hours, but for seven hours, they were really trying to... They had trouble with um, his story, and they really sure. were trying to come out with um, you know, something that could uh, wash. And, uh, you know, as, um, as Penn Jones found out, um, it was at 5 p.m. that uh, Decker made a call with Captain Fritz to, uh, you know, he wanted to talk with him in private. I had come down to his sheriff's office and, uh, you know, talk with him. So I, I can imagine that. This may have been um, what they were talking about. You know, right. they, they wanted to, they had this uh, white guy, Lee Harvey Oswald, already in custody. So, uh, I mean, that, that would be a, uh, a real score. You, you, you have to. There's enough, and people get all that forever. I mean, you see, you know, people have no uh, dying in this case. Uh, John Judge died, uh, Gary Mack died. I mean, you just don't live forever. I mean, we've got the. He's like uh, 66 uh, or 7 years old today, and um, we just have to give him the opportunity. And, um, you know, whoever goes after him has to just make it, um, you, know, you know, you don't want to barrage this guy with, uh, you know, publicity or whatever. You just want to be discreet, but you want to, you know, kind of share and, and let it be known that you're making this effort to try and go after this guy. So you don't have, suddenly have 10 people trying to go after him, you know? Right. So uh, it's a real opportunity. The third thing I want to point out um, to ROKC is that uh, it looks to me like Colin Crow is being ignored. And you ignore Colin Crow or your own peril. That's what I, he's, uh, he's an amazing researcher and he's really um, he's put together a uh, four-part series on uh, Barney Ray Williams that um, you, you just can't ignore this. So I downloaded this. It's, it's kind of long. It's like 150 pages. And, Study it carefully, and uh, it's really definitive. But the elderly Negro that Arnold Rowland um, saw up in the Cypress Nest is, is, is actually Bonnie Ray Williams, the 20-year-old, you know, black youth that um, was working for the depository. And um, there's no question. I was part of the confusion on this because I um, thought it might have been any Piper because he's a 55-year-old guy and he had a spot on his head and whatnot. But um, mm-hmm. Colin did the right thing. He um, the piece of chicken that got left behind up there, partially eaten piece of chicken. And um, he just laid out all the witnesses not in chronological order. You know, a ton of um, law enforcement people had seen this, this piece of chicken and, and all the stories that had been told by the three black guys up in the fifth floor and also um, a couple of cops there, um, especially uh, Joe Hill and uh, Marvin Johnson. And it, it just turned out that um, there were five people that tell lies about this um, piece of chicken. And so that's kind of why it took like 52 years for to sort uh, this out. But he's really, um, you know, he's really, he's really hit it. Uh, 
He's um I'm looking for an expression, but uh he's nailed he's nailed this thing, is what I wanna say. And uh so him and uh, also I should mention Tony Fatine. He's a the uh, researcher they worked uh, so good in concert together at the assassination bomb. The Tony Fatine he has found this memo that I was unaware of from the uh HSCA investigation that had uh, an interview with Bonnie Ray Williams. At least a little memo. And in this memo, he just uh, states that he joined uh, Jarman and Norman at, after the fact. You know, he, it, they did not go all go up together to the right. explore. So I mean that uh, um, those two threads, the um, the bags, uh, bags, bones, unwind and Bonnie Ray, and then the uh, two men on the sixth floor by twenty fifteen. It is just so worth reading through, even though it seems like a daunting amount of material, but it's really familiar to uh, researchers, and uh, you know, it goes very quickly. It goes in a couple of evenings, really, if you put your mind to it. And it's so worth spending the time with that, because um, it will burn uh, your mind with it. So this is, you know, what happened. It really um, helped clear things for me, because I was confused by, um, you know, I thought I gave uh, Arnold Rowland a little too much credit for being a, a phenom, kind of a brainiac. He, he made some mistakes. And also the photographer, uh, Tom Algay, had been uh, very adamant that the chicken uh, was found on the fifth floor. And that unduly, you know, influenced my thinking. But um, it's, Colin uh, said it straight. And um, so those are my recommendations for the uh, LOKC. And, uh, yeah, I'll put up some links to those articles on the website with, along with this uh, interview, Richard, so people can find them easy and check them out. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a real plus. I know, I think I saw a call on the list of speakers. Oh, by the way, I forgot to, uh, you know, wish them well. They're having a, uh, you know, the first ever um, uh, conference, JFK conference down in Australia, and that's really remarkable. It's really, uh, you know, intrepid. Um, uh, endeavor for them that they're even putting this on. Uh, I wish them every success. You know, you need to find uh, success really by um, just the doing of it. You know, it's just like you write a book. When you write the last line, you're, you're a success. And whether 200 people buy it or 200,000 people buy it, it just doesn't affect the uh, success of you having written the book, you know? So, I mean, uh, yeah, it's an accomplishment. And, uh, yeah. It's nice to get started. And, uh, I hope it goes well. You know, I, um, I had an interesting experience a few years ago when a uh, first-generation researcher uh, tracked me down. This one, uh, his name is Jones Harris, and uh, he was pounding the pavement back in 1964. And he, he tracked me down to my publisher, and he, he made the first call to me. We had a whole bunch of phone calls, five or six of them, kind of long, but the first call to me, he didn't find his life was in danger. Because um, he thought the information that he found in my book was, you know, dangerous. Right. And I assured him, you know, I, I said, no, no, no. It's been out since uh, I got that from John Armstrong's uh, Harvey Meat book. And that was in about 2003 or something. But um, he was, he was he's kind of an um, eccentric character. And he actually gets fired from uh, Jim Garrison's investigation. But it was real fun uh, getting to know him. Uh, he, he, he gave me some real doozies. I like to 
that song before we get into uh, my stuff. Sure. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty incredible stuff. Um, but I think what he's best known for is he had uh, interviewed the uh, ticket clerk at the Texas Theater, Julia Postal, and uh, described her as a nice, you know, church-born woman and stuff. But um, he's a leader in 1964 and another year, probably 57, I couldn't fight, I don't like that, but um, uh, when he asked her uh, whether she had sold Oswald ticket against that theater, she would not answer, she couldn't, she had just broke down crying, you know, turned away. So he kind of took that as a yes, you know, that she had sold him a ticket, which was, that goes against the official story, because, I mean, the official story has, um, uh, the shoe store uh, manager, uh, Johnny Brewer, Jason uh, Oswald up the street, and he sneaks into the theater, you know? So um, so you would think that uh, maybe there was an imposter, actually, uh, that had snuck into the theater, because she, she had legitimately remembered selling him a ticket. I mean, that uh, changes the whole equation there. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. So he also... Uh, interviewed a chambermaid at the uh, Cabana Hotel. This is kind of like the mob hotel out on the uh, Stemmons uh, freeway. Right. That, um, that uh, movie had had dinner there with uh, in the Egyptian Mounds the, the night of the 21st. And um, Jim Graydon, the uh, landscape uh, drug courier, had stayed there as well. But so we interviewed this chambermaid. She told them that Johnny Roselli and was in his room during the motorcade. And um, the FBI officially had been tailing him, but they lost track of him uh, in Phoenix on November 19th. So, uh, according to his chambermaid, he was in the cabana on the 22nd. And now, well, um, to try and counterbalance that, uh, there's some information from uh, Posh Plumley, who was a CIA pilot. He had taken, uh, he flown Roselli from Tampa to Houston on 21st, and then they flew up the Redbird Airport in Oak Cliff on the morning of. They arrived about 9.30 a.m. on the 22nd. And they had, he was told, Tosh uh, Pony was told that he was part of an abort team then. And Roselli went a separate way from, from him then. But I mean, uh, so, you know, that's the, that's the, uh, the angle on, on Johnny there. He was kind of a, you know, a robust mobster. Right. Um, but there was another piece of information here that um, uh, Jones Harris had said there was no sniff test of the 6-4 rifle when they were doing the search up there. Uh, this was uh, apparently a common practice back in those days to do it, kind of take the... Uh, you know, bear, run the barrel of the gun near their nose to see, see if they smell any trace of gun, gunpowder. So, yeah, well, nobody, I, nobody even smelt gunpowder in, inside the building or reported in any way, did they? No, no. So, I, mean, I think they were kind of just going through the motions of that search, you know, just pretending to have a search. They knew the rifle had never been fired. You know, they, they knew it was planted and um, just uh, went from there. So, um, okay, this, this was a piece of information that um, Jones Harris was um, very paranoid about. Because he had interviewed uh, Kenneth Croy, who was the second officer to uh, uh, arrive on the tip of murder scene. 
And Corey, this was in 2002. Corey had told him that an unidentified civilian had handed him that wallet that contained the Oswald and Hedell uh, IDs. Right. So this is the wallet that um, eventually became film footage that um, FBI agent Robert Dyer was pointing out to Captain William Westbrook. And he asked him, uh, uh, or rather Westbrook asked him, uh, you know who uh, Harvey Oswald is? Do you know who Alec James Hagel is? So, I mean, this you know, was a kind of nefarious piece of wallet because, I mean, there was a wallet that was, I guess, left in the, uh, in the room that uh, Marina and Lee stayed in the last night of at uh, Payne's home. There was also a wallet that he had on him uh, that they um, took out in the uh, arrest vehicle there, the squad car. I think Paul Bentley was the fellow who took that out. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's a little bit fishy that they, they, before they even arrest Oswald, they have a wallet on the scene of the Tippermeyer that has his ID in it. And meanwhile, he's got another wallet in the theater. I mean, you have to wonder what's going on. And uh, uh, Jones was, was sure that this guy named Igor Vaganov was the unidentified civilian. And uh, if you uh, have any interest in this guy, this um, uh, writer, uh, Mark Bridger, has written a couple of fantastic articles on Igor Vaganov uh, during the Dealey Father Echo. Really studying up on him. He's one of the serious characters. Uh, you never want to uh, even imagine. He's like a Latvian native and uh, had a torn uh, playing cards with the King of Spades on it and uh, some cryptic uh, cipher, uh, numerology with him and some weaponry. And he moved right down uh, a few days before the assassination. He moved from Pennsylvania to uh, uh, a few blocks away from where Tipple was killed. Yeah, I'd never heard of that guy before, before reading about him. Well, just to, to make a, a long story short, you have to read the articles because, I mean, they tell you all you need to know. So he, was, he was actually an Esquire um, magazine, like 67, and uh, there was a, um, a mini uh, investigation of him back then. But I mean, he's a real uh, suspect character. And it, it turned out that... Um, uh, Jones had taken a um, train ride next to, sitting right next to him uh, down to Baltimore one day, so I think from Philly to Baltimore. I mean, this is, uh, you know, pursuing your um, subject of interest. Yeah. And he, he, had, he moved to Washington, and uh, he came up with some uh, real, real, real juicy stuff about um, intelligence there. He said that, uh, Army Intelligence had a charge of the executive branch until LBJ's 1964 election. I don't know where he got this from, but I would take that just to mean that um, LBJ, whatever he did, as far as um, especially like foreign policy, that he would have to get the okay from uh, you know the brass, the military brass. And the big one, the big one here is that uh, uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK began sharing his daily intelligence briefs, which were provided by the CIA. He began sharing these with Nikita Khrushchev, 
through his back channel to a Nibosikov. So this is um, earth-shattering. Uh, yeah. It would probably be construed as treason. And, right. Uh, um, I noticed that uh, David Talbot has a new book about it that um, goes into this question. I haven't read it yet, but I plan to very soon. And, um, you know, if the... Uh, the CIA or the Joint Treaties uh, thought that JFK was committing treason by sharing these, um, you know, top secret um, intelligence briefs with the uh, enemy. Um, you know, that would probably give them a motive to uh, kill him. And uh, I think this, if this is true, I think this may have been the, um, you know, the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. In other words, um, yeah, we're thinking too. Probably even if the uh, picture of CIA uh, really wanted to get rid of them, but they, they couldn't uh, couldn't get, really get away with it under the nose of the Joint Chiefs without some kind of you know okay from them. And I think that they, um, you know, everything of well, what I've read over the years, just um, they seemed that the military was on board with this assassination and. Uh, I just wanted to um, get this stuff out there just before we got into my stuff, because um, it was given to me. It was um, he's a kind of an elderly man now, and uh, you know I just wanted to uh, do this um, his uh, age justice and just uh, share that with people. Um, you know, I think he did some work too back in the day uh, with with uh, tracking down Love Lady too and asking a bunch of questions. Tracking down who? Uh, Billy Lovelady. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Lovelady died um, at a um, strange time during the uh, little part of the uh, HSCA investigation. And, um, you know, it, it was like a massive heart attack. He was only 41 years old. I think it was 1978, 1979. But uh, it was just a little too, too, too timely because um, he really figures into uh, uh, my study. You know, he's really, uh, um, he's right in the middle of it. So, um, so I guess we'll get on with uh, my new essay. Um, well, before we do that, Richard, can, can we kind of set the table just a little bit for for people that might not be as familiar uh, with some of these workers? You know, just kind of go through the workers' names and what they were supposedly doing there and uh, what their job duties were and, you know, maybe where they worked. Just just some of the names we're going to be talking about. Yeah, like like the floor crew and, uh, you know, just, just a lot of the people we're going to be talking about here. Right. He's been uh, doing that job for uh, 20 some odd years. So he's a long time uh, big head boss. And uh, got the, um, under him is the um, miscellaneous department manager. Uh, that's William Shelley. He's kind of like a foreman for the, uh, the workers. Right. You know, he's a guy that, you know, would be interacting with them more often probably and telling them what to do. Um, you got a whole bunch of oil checkers. Um, uh, you got uh, Jack Doherty, Leslie Fraser, 
Uh, it was lovely. He was probably a woodchucker. He also built a truck for the monastery. Uh, uh, Oswald was a woodchucker. Um, got um, Harold Norman was one. Then, uh, um, so they'd, they'd kind of be roaming around, roaming around the building, trying to find uh, books to fill for the orders at whatever um, school uh, was ordering books from the school book depository. And uh, then you have, uh, like, downstairs you'd have um, uh, Troy West, he was the rapper. He'd just wrap up all the orders. Um, he had a special section down in the back, down near the elevators, and he had a, uh, um, a checker, um, James Jarman. He was just with, um, check if the orders were correct and filled and throw uh, all the invoices and, you know, check the way or what have you. And, um, he had a uh, janitor, Eddie Piper, who was, um, he had, um, you know, not only do the cleaning, but he also checked the, uh, the mail. Um, if there was any deliveries or not, I guess I'll go in mail. Um, so he kind of roamed the building uh, by himself to do his mail duties as well as his janitorial duties. Um, Did he operate the elevator too sometimes? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, then you had a, uh, another uh, uh, oil filler, um, Charles Gibbons. Right. He, was, um, he was basically a rover, actually. He uh, worked partly at the, uh, the rear warehouse um, on Houston Street, the old warehouse. And um, so we'd alternate back and forth uh, between the two buildings. Um, he had, uh, some of them were um, uh, constructing uh, or being floor layers on the sixth floor. They had a, they'd done the fifth floor, and then they... Um, started laying new floor on the sixth floor. I think during the second day of it when the assassination happened. The, the, the reason for this was, I guess it was um, uh, oil, oil stains from uh, coffee um, that used to be stored in those areas of the building from the previous uh, tenant, which was um, John Seston uh, Grocery. Um, John Sexton Company, they're a grocery wholesaler. So, they, uh, there's four or five guys laying on uh, the floor. Oh, there's another kid, um, Danny Arcade. He was a young Mexican kid. He had just been, uh, worked in a restaurant something. He was only 18 or so. And he was helping out with the floor layers as well. And if I had mentioned Bonnie Ray Williams, she was also involved with them. Um, you know, anybody that missed, uh, We'll certainly pick up uh, during the essay. You know, I may have just one or two people. There was um, 18, uh, I believe it was 18 employees in all that were on normal payroll. And, uh, four, four people basically worked down at the old warehouse to keep that place going. But the rest of the crew all worked up at the book uh, depository before 411 L Street. And then we also had some offices on the, the second, the third, and the fourth floor, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there had been renovations uh, over the previous winter, the winter of 62 63, where they, um, the building had been vacant for a whole year because the John Sexton Company moved out. And then the uh, president of the Texas School Book Depository Company, um, Jack Kaysen, 
he took a lease out on the uh, 411 Elm Street, that big building, and uh, they did some renovations to, uh, each section had their offices on the only the second floor, but they wanted to accommodate more office space, and, and so over that winter, they just um, put up a lot of, um, you know, Mushi Rock and what have you, and uh, so there were about seven companies that also shared the uh, office space in that building. Uh, at the time of assassination. Yeah, um, and I'll tell everybody too to check out uh, William Weston's essay, uh, the Spider Web of the, of the School Book Depository. Um, well, yeah, he's, he's written uh, a whole bunch of groundbreaking essays. He's really the pioneer of uh, book depository research. And he's a guy I dedicate this, this present essay to. Um, he's, he's just um, you know, the, the groundbreaker, the trailblazer. Because nobody looked at this, but they had three official government investigative bodies, the Warren Commission, House Select Committee on Assassinations, and the Assassination Records and Review Board, and none of them looked at the uh, uh, employees of the depository as you know, potential uh, suspects as complicit in the assassination. Right. And so William Weston was really the first guy. He just started in the early part of the 90s, putting together um, a whole bunch of stuff. There's several essays. Um, the one that he wrote called 411 Elm Street. And um, he wrote another couple of essays, that just, uh, which are just um, gold mines for um, information. I mean, for example, they had their, uh, their before we moved into the 411 Elm Street, their clerical offices were right across the street on the first floor of the Dow Text building. Right. I mean, that to me was astounding. You know, all the stuff that they even uh, had moved into the 411 Elm Street only the year before, only, well, let's say year they had occupied it by the time of the assassination. I was floored when I first learned this. You know, I would been at this for um, at least six years, you know, full time. And, you know, you know, you start thinking that you know it all. And uh, when, I, when I learned that, it just was... Uh, Yeah, I always thought it odd, you know, that all, all, most, well, not all, but most of these publishing companies that were in the Elm Street building were were in the Dow Techs, which is right across the street, right, you know, right before that. And I guess, I guess after every, everything was remodeled and renovated, and uh, you know, these these uh, publishing companies and the the school book depository started started moving their operations over to the Elm Street building. I want to say somewhere in mid-August, I believe. So it wasn't, they weren't really up and going that long, you know, before, uh, just a couple months before the assassination. Well, I mean, I'll let you, uh, yes, it's a question, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, it looks one way and it actually is another, you know, it's just funny. Uh, yeah, the Daltex had, um, Abraham Zappu's company, Jennifer Junior's, I think it was the fourth or fifth floor. We had third and fourth floor that he uh, occupied. And they had a, like a belt company and another uh, dress manufacturer. And uh, mostly, mostly clothing, uh, you know, manufacturing companies that all were in there at the time of the assassination. And there was like a, a very strange company at the sixth floor called the Uranium uh, 
an oil or something. Uh, uh, you know, this was suspected to be a front company. And uh, so, I mean, that's a mysterious building in a way. It's just like, um, it's almost like uh, uncharted territory. But so little has come out about what was going on in the Dow Techs. And, uh, you know, that, that definitely, um, I feel that that was one of the firing points, one of the assassin's lairs, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, he had, he had uh, a triangulate, triangulation of fire, gunfire. He had a grassy in all directions. He had a depository direction. And he had a um, Delpex direction. You know, so that, that's one one angle that's just totally unexplored. You know, almost so little known about that. Because everything was focused on the book depository. That's where all the loud noise came from. And so, you know, that's where the uh, suspects came from. That's where he worked. So that's what we get to find out about. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, just, <clears throat> just from a, you know, I guess a tra trajectory standpoint, that it would, you know, it'd be almost beneficial and it would almost look like it could have came from the school book depository, you know, even if they were firing actually from the Dow Techs, it's not that much of a difference. I mean, that you would be able to discern, um, you know, at least from somebody no, using the bullet the like the headshot. No, not at all. And plus, it's a. Uh... Probably silencers were used um, in this attack. So, you know, if you have one or two loud guns going off in one direction, two or three uh, silencers, I mean, you just wouldn't know about the silencers, you know, the silenced gunfire. Right. They had some real good ones back in the day, uh, developed by Mitch Ripple. So, um, you know, the, the, the speculation on the, the um, exactly what happened I mean, will continue for another hundred years, probably, unless the, the uh, perpetrators you know, come out and, and, and tell us. Right. I don't think that's going to happen. Like, you know, you just have food for uh, food for discussion for you know for for the next hundred years. So um, I don't know. I don't know what to say there. You know, but eventually. Uh, you have to make up your own mind on what happened and, uh, you know, you live your life accordingly. And, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, always keep digging, you know. And people, people have been looking at this case for, you know, 52 years and, and hopefully finally we're yeah. just, we're just starting to get somewhere. You know, with each year comes new revelations and new evidence. It's and, unbelievable. Well, it comes out every single year almost. It's just unbelievable stuff. It's just like this, um, I'm trying to compare it to a, uh, a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle the size of a football field, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's like we give them 5% of this puzzle on the day of, and the rest of it has been painstakingly uh, pieced together, and people even, you know, we fight over different pieces, all these little pieces that we're trying to fit together. I'd say today we have probably, uh, you know, around 40 or 50% of it, enough so we you can basically make out the whole picture of what it was. But, I mean, it's been a slow, slow process. I mean, we're uh, some of the best minds, you know, on the planet have they gone after this thing. And, uh, you know, it's been a real tussle. You, you have to... It, there's some of the most devoted people going. I mean, you almost have to uh, give up your um, all your spare time in order to devote yourself to studies because there's mountains and mountains of material source documentation and there's mountains and mountains of um, 
analysis. And you, to do anything yourself, you always have to start from square one, all by itself. Just, yeah, throw everything right? else out. You know, I mean, uh, it's just, uh, it's very daunting. It's very, you know, it, it does take time. It, the, the problem is, if you, you go at it for like five years or so, you start to get, um, you know, a little bit um, of a chip on your shoulder. You feel like you know all this stuff. And, well, you know, know nothing. Yep. It takes you about another five more years to really get down to it. And even beyond that, I mean, you keep uh, stimulating and absorbing. And, um, there's, uh, there's all kinds of trap doors and, you know, false leads and dead end alleys that you're going to go down. It's just uh, frustrating in that way, but sometimes you hit data and uh, it makes it all worthwhile. It really does, you know. Um, oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, the, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you talk about that, you know, it's uh it is it's dedication you know to looking into all this stuff and it, it does take time and and effort and uh you know but i think um yeah, yeah i think we're going to get somewhere with it but richard i tell you what before we get into your essay let's let's conclude this part of of, of the show and uh we'll let all the viewers know to tune in next week for part two, and I promise we will get straight away into Richard's essay. I believe it's called Inside Job. Yes. All right. So that's it for this week, people. Make sure you tune in next week, and we will start Richard's essay, Inside Job. You don't want to miss it. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Make sure you head over to tlgpodcast.com for all the relevant links. Uh, so you can check it out and follow along with the show stuff we're talking about. I'll put up some pictures, uh, like I said, links to some of the articles we've talked about. So Richard, thank you for joining me this week and we're going to have you back next week. Okay. And, uh, we'll get right into your essay and I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Till next week. This some bitch is in the can beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears. People this is your boy. Peace. Goes hides in my mind in the night in a way she's haunting me. I'm wanting her still.
sight in my in the night in a way she's haunting me wanting still through rose colored skies or blue blue Save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. It's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.